Today's podcast is brought to you by The Power of A. The Power of A was created by the American Society of Association Executives to highlight the many contributions America's associations make to the economy and society at large. Learn more at thepowerofa.org. From the CQ Roll Call Newsroom in Washington, this is CQ Now, your nonpartisan news source for how the inside workings of Congress and the federal government shape the real world. The Republican Party looks like it's got Donald Trump as its frontrunner, and that could just be the start of its problems. The earliest spending bill to hit the Senate floor in years was halted in a burst of partisan friction in what could augur a long, difficult summer for Republican leaders. And the Supreme Court wants to define corruption in a case that has huge ramifications for what politicians can define as their official duties. I'm Adriel Bettelheim with CQ Roll Call with a look ahead to the week of May 2nd, joined by political columnist Stu Rothenberg, budget and appropriations reporter Kelly Madrick, and legal affairs reporter Todd Ruger. First, presidential politics. Stu, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton continue to rack up delegates in five Northeast primaries. Let's look forward, sketch out the contours of a general election between the two, and does Hillary have any problems? Well, uh, I think there's no question that uh, uh, former Secretary Clinton is the nominee, the Democratic nominee. I don't think there's any doubt about that. On the Republican side, there's still some question. Look, uh, the overwhelming favorite now is Donald Trump, uh, but he he has to pile up delegates in Indiana and California between now and June 7th. I think he's likely to get close enough. So I think it's fair to treat him as the likely Republican nominee. I think in the general election, the early survey data are pretty clear. It suggests that um, uh, Clinton is ahead by, oh, about 10 points. You know, some surveys have her up by a dozen. Some, it's closer single digits. But she's going to start as the front runner in the presidential race. And Donald Trump's going to have to change the trajectory of the contest and the fundamental dynamics of the race to overtake her. Now, he argues he can do that, that he's a different kind of candidate who talks differently to the American public than other candidates have, that he has the ability to reach white working class downscale voters in places like Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. He might be right about that, but it's a terrible risk for Republicans to take because there is a chunk of the party that simply is uncomfortable with him and almost certainly won't support him, and that chunk is probably double the number of defections that most Republicans have in a presidential race. And there's very serious concern that Trump or even Senator Ted Cruz could cost Republicans control of the Senate if either of them are the are the leading the ticket. Is there any way endangered incumbents can inoculate themselves, or is there nowhere to hide? Well, there is a strategy. Uh, unfortunately for Republicans, it almost never works. Uh, look, the problem is that Cruz and Trump are so out of sync with the country as a whole. Not not with all Americans. There's a chunk who like Donald Trump and like Ted Cruz. But we're talking about swing voters, independents, folks in the middle who are more casual voters, less ideological, uh, who I think many of whom will be turned off uh, by either Cruz's uh, uh, conservatism, unapologetic, uh, uh, uncompromising conservatism, and Trump's bullying tactics, rudeness, coarseness, uh, lack of uh, dignity. So this, this is a problem down ballot because a lot of Republicans will stay home. There's a risk of, uh, well, let's just take an example. Say you're Kelly Ayotte and you're running for re-election in New Hampshire. You're a personable, smart, likable, mainstream conservative who ought to be able to appeal to swing voters. Of course, hold your Republicans, maybe appeal to some Democrats, and certainly appeal to swing voters. 
each and every day Kelly Ayotte is going to be asked on the campaign trail by voters but also by journalists to compare and contrast her positions with Donald Trump's or Ted Cruz's. And it's just not going to play well. She is going to have trouble uh, dictating the campaign discussion. She's going to be responding, and she's going to be at the mercy of the top of the ticket. So I think it's a huge problem for Republicans like Ayotte. You had a column about the the spirit of the times. Um, After three decades of moving to the right, the country is going in a different direction. Uh, Income inequality, a big issue. Wall Street under assault. Bipartisan opposition to free trade and cultural issues like gender equity are are being, are dominating the agenda. Can Republicans adapt long term and, and do they have any sort of a uniting theme? Well, in the short term, it's a, it's a huge problem um, because elections, I often say elections are about what elections are about, which sounds like a mere tautology. But in fact, it, what it means is the subject matter of an election, what, what are, how voters see an election is crucial. And right now, um, for Republicans, they, they have Cruz and Trump who have some personality challenges, personality issues. Uh, but the issue mix, as you point out, is a huge problem. It's changed from the 80s. Republicans were aggressive, could talk about crime and taxes and big government and economic growth. And uh, uh, the 60s and 70s culturally had gone too far. We're in a very different position. Just look at the Catholic Church. In the 1980s, the Catholic Church was focused on homosexuality and abortion. And now the Catholic Church seems focused on social and economic justice issues. So it's going to take time for Republicans to turn this around. I think one thing that will allow them to do it, not in 2016, but in 2018 and 2020, is you'll have a Democratic president. You may well have a Democratic Senate. And what we found in American politics is the party that wins one election goes too far two years later or four years later, (laughs) gives the out party the opportunity to come back. So the Republicans are going to have to count on that. It's the ebb and flow of American politics, but it's going to take some time. Well, it would certainly help the Republicans this year if their leaders in Congress could show they can govern. Uh, But Kelly, uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's goal of spending 12 weeks on spending bills is already in jeopardy. The first bill to hit the floor is in trouble because of a fight over the Iran nuclear deal. Yeah, and, you know, this has been a talking point for Republican leaders in both the Senate and the House. And given the election year, this is obviously a political attempt to try to shape the conversation toward um, showing voters that Republicans can make Congress work. But unfortunately, the Senate, which saw what has become really just budget and appropriations turmoil in the House, the Senate kind of seized on some procedural, some very complicated procedural maneuvers to try to forge ahead and bring the first energy water appropriations bill to the floor historically early. Everybody was kind of holding hands in the first few days um, that the bill was moving through the floor. And then all of a sudden, this amendment from Senator Tom Cotton appears out of nowhere, the Democrats say, and it triggers a veto threat from the White House. And all of a sudden, we are back into the same kind of partisan brinksmanship that has plagued the appropriations process for years. When lawmakers return from recess, I think it will be a critical point. And Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has made it his number one goal to pass all 12 appropriations bills that fund the government. He's said this over and over again, but um, with the first bill out the gate, it seems that whole strategy is, is in limbo at this point. 
And Iran nuclear affairs, notwithstanding, it's an energy water bill, and the amendment was blocking heavy water purchase from Iran by the Energy Department? Absolutely. And, and I think it's important to note that this amendment was considered germane. This was a spending restriction on how the Energy Department could spend its money. And so the argument that this amendment was a poison pill, this has been kind of the talking point on the Democratic side, keep the bills clean, keep keep the poison pills out so that President Barack Obama will sign them, let's do this together. That kind of fell apart as well, because then suddenly this germane amendment um, became a poison pill to Democrats. And I think that Republicans were kind of backed into a corner here. If they allowed the Democrats to label this as a poison pill and protect the bill from it, they would essentially um, give that party the ability to label germane amendments as poison pills. And I don't think that um, Republicans want to do that this early in the process. Moving appropriations forward at this point has become kind of a battle over how amendments are going to be handled on the Senate floor. And I don't think that leaders in both parties have come to agreement on that. And that is how they, they have to move past that in order to keep moving the spending bill process forward. And the really controversial stuff still to come, health policy, financial regulation, the environment. Uh, does anyone seriously believe there is such a thing as regular order in Washington in an election year? Or is McConnell just trying to show up the Democrats as obstructionists? I mean, we did kind of wonder why we would have another vote to wrap up work on the energy water bill just a day after Democrats had blocked wrapping up work on the energy water bill. And that morning, McConnell and Minority Leader Harry Reid exchanged this war of words over who was to blame for the fallout in the appropriations process, which really showed that their efforts, right as they were about to leave for, for recess, to try again to come together on this, uh, on this, on this bill, nobody was taking the bait there. Everyone realized the last vote they were going to take before leaving for recess was going to fall apart. And it did. Both parties now go home with a message that doesn't bode well for cooperation when they get back. Republicans are going to say the Democrats are obstructionists, that they have blocked progress on spending bills, and Democrats are going to come home and say Republicans are unwilling to play ball with us and they're not playing a fair game. Everybody kind of believes that all this flurry of appropriations work historically early in both chambers, and if you ask them quietly in the halls what this really means, they, they will agree that this is kind of jockeying for an omnibus. And this is a catch-all spending measure at the end of the year that nobody likes because it consolidates power into the hands of leadership. It leaves lawmakers increasingly jaded about their ability to exercise any type of p political power over where the government spends its money. And it's triggered kind of larger um, conversations at the budget committee level, which is supposed to set a blueprint for how money is spent. It's triggered larger conversations in the Senate of axing the Budget Committee entirely. Senate Budget Committee Chairman Mike Enzi, the Republican from Wyoming, even suggested, and his, uh, his top Democrat on the committee, Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island, both agreed, okay, well, maybe if this is holding up the process, we should just get ourselves out of the game. <laughs> Going to that level, having those types of conversations really shows how broken down the federal 
spending process has become. Yeah, and with a truncated work schedule, I mean, it just seems like it's all going to end in gridlock and, and with a lot of lawmakers jockeying to add their priorities to these must-pass bills. So while Congress tries to untangle itself, the Supreme Court is trying to figure out how politicians can do their jobs without running afoul of corruption laws. And it starts, Todd Ruger, with a case involving the former Virginia Republican governor, Bob McDonnell. That's right. Um, Bob McDonnell back in 2011, 2012 was sort of a shining star considered maybe to be a vice presidential pick or, or uh, you know, uh, have a great career in politics. But what prosecutors say is he was actually in debt and that he met with a businessman named Johnny Williams who had a product that he wanted, a new product he wanted the Virginia State Scientific Schools to do research on. And uh, Williams started giving a bunch of lavish gifts to the McDonald, uh, Bob McDonald and his wife, Maureen, and prosecutors say that it crossed the line what he did in exchange for those gifts, and it was uh, corruption, uh, and they charged him and he was prosecuted. He, um, in 2014, was convicted on 11 counts and uh, was sentenced to two years in prison, and now he's appealed to the Supreme Court. So in essence, the Justice Department says McDonald used the power of his office to help a businessman in exchange for gifts. McDonald's lawyers say this is routine political activity, arranging meetings, attending events, what have you. Right. And there's nothing really uh, routine about the gifts that he got. This is the kind of the fun part of the case. I mean, it was a a $20,000 Fifth Avenue shopping spree for Maureen McDonald, a $5,000 plus monogrammed Rolex for for the governor. Um, there was even $5,000 for his share of a, a clam private clam bake when they went on vacation. Golf, all this stuff. But th- the interesting thing is Virginia law doesn't say that that's a problem. Um, but what, and then what he did in exchange uh, was he set up like f- uh, a product launch at the governor's mansion. And then he set and then he instructed certain state officials to meet with uh, with with uh, the people who are trying to get this study done at these universities. So what it came down to was, what is an official act? It was, are those things official acts that he did in exchange for, for these gifts? Yeah, and, and you get beyond the extravagances. It could really have a, a chilling effect on how members of Congress do their jobs, how they interact with lobbyists. Right. Uh, the Supreme Court, when they heard oral arguments on this last week, they were focused on what what is the line that you can tell an elected official as to when they're crossing this line and doing an official act versus a non-official act? And so he, theoretically, uh, you've got McDonald's lawyers who say it has to be uh, an expressly uh, doing something on behalf of the state government. And the, 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 the government, the De- Department of Justice says, no, you, you can influence things. And so the real question is, well, where do you get from influencing to, to an official act. Uh, for instance, uh, Justice Breyer, who uh, had previous experience in the Senate and in the DOJ, said lawmakers all the time write letters. Hey, my constituent Susie Smith came in and, and you guys haven't heard her housing case for two years. Could you please take a look at it? Now, is that influencing or is that just writing a letter for constituent services? And so a lot of lawmakers are paying attention to this saying, where is that line? Uh, and, and Justice Breyer had um, a real concern about that over and over. One of the examples that came up uh, was from Justice Kennedy. He said, well, what about a janitor in a school? If you give this janitor a bottle of beer in order to clean a classroom first, is that influencing his official duties because he's a government employee? 
And the, the response from, from the government was, well, if, if he was given a bottle of beer in exchange for maybe co- doing a government contract for cleaning supplies, then you would have uh, a corruption uh, statute. So a lot of people are saying, where is, exactly is this line in these federal sta- bribery statutes? Yeah, coming at it another way, uh, there was talk about you could see where government officials would not be committing bribery if they take money for arranging an official meeting or some access the public doesn't have. I guess one of the things that the Supreme Court is struggling with is whether the whether this law is unconstitutionally vague for when lawmakers are looking at it and and trying to discover and and what they eventually come up with it looks like they're going to side with with Governor McDonald former Governor McDonald on this because a either giving him a new trial because the jury instructions were wrong or maybe even wiping out some of these laws that uh, have been on the books for cent for well the DOJ says centuries but decades and and maybe having to have Congress start over with crafting a new law to try to fix, to try to keep corruption out of politics. Legal Affairs reporter Todd Ruger, thanks very much. And my thanks to budget and appropriations reporter Kelly Madrick and to Stu Rothenberg, founding editor of the Rothenberg and Gonzalez Political Report. I'm Adriel Bettelheim. Thanks for listening. Until next time, you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at CQ Now. And you can download our podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Have a good week.